I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. We're pleased to be joined by Rick Tellender today. And Rick's been one of my favorite writers over the years, so I'm really thrilled about him joining us. He's a senior sports columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times since 1995. And he spent many, many years at Sports Illustrated as a senior writer from 74 to 98. And he also uh, has written for ESPN on different platforms. He's been on TV, radio, you name it. Rick's done it. Rick, thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Todd. Well, there's no cigar smoke here. I got to tell you, it's not (laughs) like your days from the sports writers on TV. (laughs) That's okay. Uh, I breathed enough as a young man to, um, to make up for anything now. I was, I was curious, like, how are your lungs after all those years of sitting next to Gleason? Well, they're good. Uh, Gleason, Bill Gleason and um, Ben Bentley had to smoke cigars. It's almost like I compared it to a, a little kid with a pacifier. And uh, <laughs> you could not make them not smoke. And uh, that was just the deal. And one time I came in, there, you know, some cigar smoke billowing in this room that actually was very detrimental to the, you know, the lights and the cameras and all that in the studio. And those guys didn't care. It's too bad. You know, clean it, whatever. The particulate <laughs> matter in there, clean it up. So one time I came in and I actually, uh, I went out and got a very cheap gas mask, a yellow thing that went over my yes. ears and all that stuff. Yeah, I wore it and it, I breathed okay. Thing is, she couldn't hear me. It's like, woo, 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 woo. So I had to take that off. I, I got a little miniature fan to blow the smoke towards them. None of it worked. Uh, I just sucked it up. Well, I got to tell you, I, I watched that show religiously back in my days as a sports writer. And, uh, you know, it was one of my favorite shows. But I think I have secondhand smoke problems <laughs> just from watching it on television. So. Well, we had a, one time we had a little fire in the uh, ashtray. It was a great big ashtray, big cigar ashtray. Ben Bentley was firing up his cigar, dropped the match in there, and everything lit on fire. We were live, you know, um, the tape was going live. And, like, he's panicking. I mean, it went out eventually, but it was pretty interesting, too. Yeah, those weren't just cigars. Those things look like telephone poles. <laughs> yeah, I know. And when they, when they weren't lit, they could just gum them. You know, it would be this chaw in the corner of their mouth. I, I love those guys, man. I, you know? That's the old days. I've even tried smoking cigars, you know, with friends to sit around. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and try. It's okay every now and then, but oh my God, to have one every day, I mean, it would be, um, uh, it'd just be torture. <laughs> well, we've never shared a cigar. We did on my 40th birthday at uh, the 2006 British Open in St. Andrews. Uh, you and I and Marla Reidenauer celebrated in a pub in St. Andrews, and uh, that's how I rang in my 40th. I remember that well, Todd. It was so smoky in there. They could still smoke, and I thought, right. I don't know, man, it was low ceiling and everything, but boy, how about that, being in St. Andrews? Was that not what about an it? awesome that place, place? Oh, my gosh. And, and in fact, you could just walk right off the 18th green, and there's a pub. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there was. There are all kinds of things. And as soon as the golfers were done, they opened up the whole course like a park. And oh, people yeah, just right. walked all over because it's like cement, the fairways, anyhow. You know, it's just it's a right. links course right there, that huge beach, gigantic beach. And when we were there, Todd, it was very interesting. You're used to uh, seeing hor- just horrendous weather, you know, mm-hmm. winds and rain coming sideways. We were there, it was hot. It was wonderful. Yeah. It was sunny. Oh, it was magnificent. I was almost disappointed in the fact that we didn't get the, you know, that crazy Scottish weather that you associate with the uh, British yeah. Open. I do remember, like you said, they opened the, the course up at night and people are walking around like it's a regular park. And I remember seeing a dog taking a crap <laughs> on the 18th fairway the night before the final round. And I'm like, 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> that, that was that was really something. I you could hit a drive if you had a good roll. It seems to me like they would just go, you know, out of sight and just continue on. You see this thing rolling past somebody's drive. You don't even know where it came from because it was essentially a runway. A lot of those things. But if you got in trouble in the uh, you know the deep whatever they call that stuff, the gorse or the you know the uh, those uh, bushes, right? Yeah, 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 whatever, man. It was like um, you'd never find your ball. So no, no, no. I could never find my ball anyway, no matter where I'm playing. No. So, you know. <laughs> so, Rick, what a career. I mean, 50 years, basically, you know, when you think about all the different places you've been and things that you've covered, uh, we're, we're going to talk a lot of football and basketball. But I wanted, wanted to start with football because, you know, one thing I used to hear from people when they were pissed at me was, hey, you didn't actually play. You know what, though, Rick Tallender, you actually played football. You played college football at Northwestern. Uh, how were you as a player? I know you got drafted, right, by the NFL. Yeah, I got drafted by the Chiefs. Uh, as I like to say, I, they gave me a cup of coffee and didn't even fill it. And then Hank Strand basically said, Rick, you know, it's time for you to get on with your career. Yeah, uh, whatever, said whatever you, that it was time for you to matriculate <laughs> your way into some other field. Hank Strand was not only the coach, he was also the general manager. So okay. anyway, they said, well, listen, what, somebody said, this is a good strategy I've heard. Tell them that if they don't give you more money, you're going to, you're going to go to law school. And he said, Rick, you know, you went to Northwestern. You, that, that sounds logical. Like, you know, maybe you're some smart dude or something. So anyway, I, <laughs> I did float that with Hank Stram. And he said, oh, okay. And he gave me $500 more in my bonus. But he took it off of my salary. If I were to make the team, <laughs> I didn't care. I, so I, you know, I got three thousand dollars as a bonus. It was twenty five hundred. I worked him up to three three thousand. It's a lot of money back in nineteen seventy one. Uh, more than I ever made. I took that check uh, from the Chiefs, really nicely printed, and put it on the um, uh, this mirror in the front room of this uh, house. This dilapidated old three story house where a bunch of us guys are living. I just left it there. It's very interesting that. That training camp experience, getting cut as an eighth-round draft pick with the Chiefs, actually led to your writing career directly. Yeah, yeah, it did. You know, one thing that I tell young writers, aspiring writers, if you're going to write uh, nonfiction, it's hard just to get right into fiction. But uh, what do you know? What's unique about your life? And believe me, everybody's life is unique. You need to figure out what that is. I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated. That was my dream job. I never told anybody, never really told anybody I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wanted to make a living at it. I didn't want to just be a guy in an attic somewhere starving and, you know, uh, with consumption, or, you know, blanket wrapped around him, a little candle for heat uh, typing. Wait, away. wait, wait a minute. You mean, you mean kind of like me right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did have my moments that were similar to that. Uh, but I wanted to write for Sports Illustrated and I had read the magazine forever. And, you know, that was Sports Illustrated was really a big deal back then. I mean, that was it. Oh, it was like the sports Bible. I mean, it was literature. The only four-color weekly sports magazine in the world. And it's great expense that they spent putting that thing out. So anyway, that was my dream. And uh, if I was going to do that, I had read different sections of the magazine. And if I were going to offer anything, I knew I couldn't write to them and say, hey, you know, I want to cover the World Series for you. What do you think? But maybe I could write about my own experience which nobody else had. Have you had anybody else who was in an NFL training camp who got cut, has to get on with his life, whatever, how pitiful his whole life is. Have you ever had anybody write a first-person story about that? And the editor, Pat Ryan, said, I mean, I didn't say that in so many words. Told her what I thought maybe I could do. And she said, yeah, yeah you know what? That is interesting. So yeah. do it on speculation. We'll pay you $1,000 if we run it. Almost no. as much as Hank was paying you. Oh, God, man, I'm so rich. I can live on $1,000 for about six months. Anyway, I wrote it. it. took me a long time. I agonized. I got it in, and they actually ran it. And that was the start of it. So that playing football was the one thing that I had that kind of separated me, and I think I've been able to utilize that throughout my career. What did I do different? What have I seen different? You know, and I, I'm sure you have, Todd, too, in your, you know, your column writing and all, reporting. We all have that. People just have to look and say, what is it that I have that nobody else has? Mm -hmm. Find your distinct voice and what do you know? And yeah. at the time, you knew what it was like to be cut. And you wrote the story, Football Like a Rose. And that became a, that story for Sports Illustrated became your first book, 
from red ink to roses. You you wrote that first article and that first book by hand. You didn't you didn't type. Absolutely, I wrote um, Heaven Is a Playground, which was my very first book. Six hundred pages of yellow legal pad and a pencil in longhand, and then um, I had found you know somebody to type it for me because I couldn't type. Never I couldn't could. type. No. You wanted to be a writer, but you couldn't type. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You're like Abe exactly. Lincoln by the fire, just writing on a legal pad. <laughs> well, I just get a piece of charcoal and do it on a, a wall of a cave, you know? I mean, I, I, uh, I still can't really type, but it's irrelevant if you're using a laptop, whether you can type or not. You can peck, hunt and peck. You know, there's still some guys I, uh, I've seen in the press box, just rare, rare, who use actually one finger, not, not one finger on each hand, but one finger right. to type. And pretty much as fast as anybody because, you know, you just erase, delete, you know, write, write it over. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a real issue not being able to type there at the beginning. Yes. Well, in the 70s, right, you could just do, do things a little differently, you know, as long as you got it done. <laughs> you know, I did actually write a couple stories for Sports Illustrated. I printed them. I was at games or whatever, but I still I couldn't type. I literally... Uh, it would take me forever because you had to hit that key and the hammer had to hit. And if you made a mistake, you're supposed to go back and use white out or a little piece of paper that had white on it. It was a miserable experience. So I actually would print them out uh, as legibly as I could. And then there was a guy, and it was Lance. Love that. It was a kid. And he was from Western Union. And he'd come and grab the things. And somehow, I don't know, they put it in one of those rollers or whatever. And away we'd go. <laughs> and, you know, and it worked. So somebody in New York would then type up this chicken scratching that I'd done. It was it was pitiful. I, I got to admit, it was really sad. Pony Express, that thing in New York, right? <laughs> I think my kids say to me, Dad, are you using a stone tablet and a chisel? What is that? <laughs> well, you played football, you wrote by hand, and you actually learned to type, and you started writing full-time at Sports Illustrated in 74 and, and stayed there for 24 years. And you also, besides playing football, went on to write a lot of football I think in the 80s, you were like the college football writer at Sports Illustrated. And that was quite a time uh, for college football when you think about it. Oklahoma, um, Lou Holtz and uh, the Irish at Notre Dame were rolling. The U, Miami Hurricanes. What was it like in the the mid-80s, late-80s covering college football? Well, I think I can say without any hyperbole that it was crazy. It was the Wild West in the entire country. Uh, every place. It was nuts. The stuff that was going on in Oklahoma, I mean, that's when there would be guns in the dormitory. There was a gang rape. The uh, Charles Thompson, the quarterback for Oklahoma, a guy that I liked, <laughs> I ended up visiting him at uh, Big Spring, Texas Penitentiary. You know. Yeah, he ended up on the cover of Sports Illustrated handcuffed. Yeah, in an orange jumpsuit, you know, and uh, there's your starting quarterback, and he's, he's a drug dealer. I mean, big time, big, big time drug dealer. It was really wild what was going on everywhere. And um, it just, it was completely out of hand. It was almost like college football was waiting for some kind of regulation, for somebody to come and say, my God, you know, there's SMU paying players, you know, the Pony Express paying Jerry Ball. And uh, God, I mean, just, it was nuts. And then the governor of Texas, after they kind of stopped that, that deal, he said, well, you know, these, these, fellows have been counting on that money so much, like in these envelopes, that it's kind of wrong to not keep paying them. <laughs> so they did. Uh, you know, and then SMU got the death penalty. Uh, it was wild. And at that time, Todd, there was really nobody else who was covering the whole country in college football, you know, flying mm-hmm. from Washington, say, to Miami, to Oklahoma, to Texas, to Ohio State, the whole Southwest Conference, Southern Cal. On and on, and then and all the Big Ten teams, and putting it all together, like, what is the big picture? So it was almost surreal. Uh, there might have been, I don't know who else was doing it in, in the whole country. You know, people were focused on their conference or their team and their city, whoever they were playing. But I was going here, there, and everywhere, and I would talk to coaches. They didn't know anything that I knew. I mean, they were like, really? That's going on out there or down here? Or- yeah, you think about how we weren't connected yeah. back then. Right? No internet. No cell phones. Uh, you wanted to find out something. Uh, USA Today hadn't even started, you know, in the 70s. It didn't come out until the 80s. But there was no way to find out facts. 
uh, to get them, you had to call the PR guy. You had to go to the place, uh, you know, wherever, the athletic department at that particular school to actually find out what was going on. It was, uh, it was, <laughs> it was stimulating. It was crazy. Um, I still don't think I've recovered. Well, tell me, t- tell us a story about like just showing up at Oklahoma. What was it like? You show up at Oklahoma, Barry Switzer's the coach and w- welcome Rick. Welcome to, uh, <laughs> welcome to our football yeah. program. What's that like? Well, the PR guys, you'd have to deal to it with PR guys. I liked them all, but they were always trying to steer you away from the scandals, whatever the scandals might be, ineligibility, payola, uh, you know, whatever, uh, coaches uh, having affairs with other coaches' wives, stuff like that. Uh, and then actual crime, serious crime. University of Colorado in on that stuff, too. Mm-hmm. And so, say, hey, Barry, how you doing? Go to his office and shoot the breeze with him. He was... You know, he wrote a, uh, he had an autobiography. It's called Bootlegger's Boy. Not mm-hmm. like uh, I coach men or I'm a football guy. Bootlegger's Boy. His dad Which was I think boot- is very honest, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Here's what I am. <laughs> <laughs> he did not make that up. His dad, uh, he said, he used to, Barry told me his dad would sometimes pull a pistol and just fire holes to the roof of their, like, uh, shack in Arkansas, wherever it was up, up on a cement blocks. And then his dad... His mother, Barry's mother, shot his dad. And his girlfriend came to pick him up to take him to the hospital. I, I think I got this right. And then she crashed the car and killed them both. And, you know, you think, okay, this is this guy's upbringing. And here he is now. He's got his quarterback, Charles Thompson. I said, where'd you find a talent like him? Because they're running the wishbone. He said, well, I found him. He was breakdancing on a big piece of cardboard at a car dealership in Lawton. <laughs> this is new. This is new. <laughs> Rick, how do you you played college football in the late sixties, early seventies at Northwestern? How did you think playing college football informed you as a writer covering college football? Well, everybody can watch the game, and I, I, I'm not one of these people that feel you have to. You know, if you want to write about war, you had to be a soldier. You want to write about politics, you had to be a politician. I think observation can give you a lot. But also, I do believe that the, being inside locker rooms, the being there, knowing what a coach's word means to you, knowing the relation you had with your teammates, seeing, uh, you know, know how you depended on each other, that at certain times you felt this almost like rapture. The whole was greater than the parts. All of you working together. When that happens... It's, it's actually transcendent. I mean, you feel this love for this other guy. Uh, this is incredible. And then also the, uh, the, the racial things that I saw uh, in the team. You know, my, it was hard for me to believe that my freshman class, all the scholarship players, 25 or so, all white. Every one of them mm-hmm. was white. And I thought, what, what is going on? There were black guys before me and certainly a lot after, but none in my class. And I'm thinking, You've got to be kidding me. Where, 1968, where the, the, yeah, the entire yeah. class? Where yeah. are the black guys? And Because I, I knew they were out there. I'd played against them in high school. And I've seen coaches do things to players, my, my buddies, my teammates, demean them in ways that, you know, I still haven't gotten over. Because the power hmm. that a coach has over you is 100%. It is total. You don't play unless the coach puts you in. And it's almost always somebody that's almost as good as you or better. You mentioned race. I always thought looking back through the prism of time in that era in the mid to late 80s, you had the whole Notre Dame versus Miami thing going on. And I always felt that was racially tinged in many respects. Absolutely. You were on on the front lines of that. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they they had those T-shirts, Catholics versus convicts. I actually wrote about that. Notre Dame had all the Catholics, allegedly, and Miami had convicts. I mean, you know. Both sides had troubled people and had trouble with the law. I actually went to Miami. Jimmy Johnson was the coach. And um, I, I went around and started asking guys. Miami had far more Catholics on its starting team than Notre Dame did. Uh, I think Steve Walsh was the quarterback. The offensive line was from all over, but they were, I think they were all Catholics. Uh, I think Tony Rice, I believe, was the quarterback for uh, Notre Dame. He was Baptist. So right. it was... Yeah, everything, listen, the whole world is racial. In America, everything's about race. We're dealing with it today. We, you know, I thought we'd solved a lot of things in the 60s with all the tumult. 
but we didn't. We just kicked them down the road. And I saw things happening in football that um, were very unusual, and I knew it had to change. Yeah, and you end up writing a great book about that. You, in 1989, you came out with your book, The 100-Yard Lie, The Myths and Corruption of College Football, because, again, you had the experience of your own playing career, but then you're covering this Wild West era of college football what what led to that book? And um, when you look back on it, I know you've updated it even recently. Where does that book stand and all the things you you have done in your writing career for you? Well, well that was kind of my testimony to what I had seen that I thought was unique. Uh, again, my position, having played football, having gone to, um, uh, you know, played in the Big Ten, uh, you know, played in some big games, played in huge stadiums, uh, you know, traveled, done all this stuff, played the Coliseum in L.A., played in the, uh, you know, at Ohio State there, the 100,000 or whatever people want, wanting to kill you, which I understood. Uh, <laughs> all that scene, all, and then just putting it all together, what is wrong here? And somebody once said to me, actually an editor at Sports Illustrated, because I'd just seen too much. He said, Rick, you know what? You should never see how the sausage is made. And that's kind of an edict that I, uh, I believe is absolutely true. But once you do see how the sausage is made, what you do see behind the curtain, you see, you know, the Wizard of Oz behind that curtain with the levers, you see the hypocrisy, you see the fraud, you see the, uh, well, you see the racism, you see the uh, imperialism, you see the money-making, the greed, you see all those things. You'll see it if it's politics, you'll see it if it has to do with business, anything you look at too closely, this is what you're going to find because we're humans and we're flawed and faulty and frail. So when I wrote that book, The 100 Yard Lie, the first time I put everything in there that I could think of that I had seen that I just thought was wrong. Coaches abusing players, uh, guys who shouldn't be in school, players not getting even remotely anything resembled in education, being used up, injured, and just discarded like, you know, waste. And then I saw the coaches starting to exploit all this. I saw the coaches themselves in weird ways being corrupted in ways they didn't want. I felt a lot of them really just wanted to coach football. Mm-hmm. And they started to see the money that was there, the ancillary aspects to it. Cheating became, I mean, I saw the whole fraud of amateurism. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Well, before we leave football, I wanted to to steer over to professional football, which has its own issues, but in some ways is more, it is a business, right? It's, 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 it tells you right up front that this is, these are paid mercenaries. And so in the eighties, you know, you're a Chicago guy and in football, you immediately think, well, 85 Chicago bears and you were around that team and those characters, man, what a cast of characters, right? Oh my God. Again, the big uh, fulcrum there, the lever is there was no internet. There's no cell phones. Nobody's taking pictures of what these guys are doing off the field. <clears throat> I lived next door to the Bears training camp, next door to Hallis Hall. I mean, literally the fence that was my backyard, and the backyard was only about maybe 20 feet. And there were bushes on the other side of this fence, chain link fence, and that was the Bears practice field. It was also the Lake Forest College Division three foresters game field. So they would tear it up and then the bears would practice on it. It was ridiculous. 100 yard field. That's all it was. And, um, you got the best football team on the planet. Exactly. Practicing on this field. That's a hundred. It's, it's one hundred yard field. It's all torn up. Grass. And when they would play, <laughs> when the foresters would play like Ripon or Lawrence or somebody, in, say, late October, it'd be a rainstorm, and they would tear the living hell out of that field. There's was just mud. But then it would freeze. It was horrible. It was just horrible. Nobody's there. I could look out my window, and I could see, you know, Mike Ditka. I could see Jim McMahon. I, Walter Payton, 
and these other guys would come to the fence right next to my house because um, there are all these bushes, and they didn't want to go all the way, the 120 yards, you know, through the end zone indoors to Hallis Hall if they had to take a leak. So I'd be on my little deck there, and I'd look out and say, hey, get out of here. I'd yell, scare these guys <laughs> half to death. You know, like I was going to call the cops. I mean, watering your grass, right? <laughs> it didn't come through. Anyway, it was funny. So I finally ended up cutting a hole in the fence. So I could walk right there. I'd be on the field in, you know, three seconds. I was literally right there. So Jim Harbaugh was then the quarterback uh, later in the 90s. And we talked one time. He actually had suggested, you know, asked me if maybe I'd want to sell my house to him because he could be right there, you know, on the field. Literally, he could, he could uh, if you were fast, he could get inside the meeting room like 20 seconds, cutting through that fence. Eventually, the college put a new fence in, you know, boarded off everything that I had done. You mentioned Ditka. So he's got this team with all these characters, you know, McMahon and all these guys, Hampton and all these guys. McMichael. McMichael, just legendary, like, folk tales about these guys. You wrote a couple books with Dicka. What made Dicka the right coach for that team, especially in the magical year of 85? Uh, that's, that's a very good question. I think that his, his inner fire, which is just there, it's like bubbling, it's like a cauldron. You want to be careful it doesn't blow up around you. I think that that was just the right moment for the great talent that they had. He was perfect for one year. Hmm. And they should have repeated, but they could never get a, a quarterback. McMahon could never stay healthy. Mm-hmm. They brought in one quarterback after the other from Doug Flutie, you know, on and on and on. And um, so they could never get that straight. But that one moment, the ferocity that he had, that everybody knew about, knew about it from him being a player, he was not your typical head coach. He was not a X's and O's, you know, spend end, endless amounts of time in devising schemes. He did do that, but he took the offense and the defense whole separate team. You know, mm-hmm. with, with Fensick, McMichael, Hampton, uh, don't forget the Fridge was there, um, Mike Singletary, Otis Wilson. I mean, these guys were incredible. Les Frazier in the backfield. They had their own coach. Yeah. They, had, they had Buddy Ryan. I'm sure you recall, what, after they won the Super Bowl, just annihilated the Patriots. They hoisted both Buddy Ryan and Ditka under their shoulders when they came off the field. I don't think that's ever been done before. Defensive coordinator and the head coach. You played defense in college. What what made that 46 defense of Ryan so special, besides the obvious talent? Yeah, well, yeah, certainly you needed the talent. But it was an aggressiveness that nobody had prepared for. It was just basically saying, we're going to put almost – Ten guys on the line. We'll have Gary Fensick, our free safety, be back a little ways. And we're going to take the receivers. We're going to do everything. You've got these old five-step drops. They used to have boom, 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 pat the ball and look downfield. You're not going to make it to five-step. Forget the seven-step drop. You may roll out. We may have a blitz on from the corner. You, you're going to get annihilated. And uh, nobody figured out a defense, how, I mean, how to uh, work against it. You can look at some of the... Um, defenses, then they're literally all on the line. I mean, every guy's within two yards of the line of scrimmage. So yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. And it was, so it was vulnerable to a lot of things, but nobody could take advantage of it. They didn't have time. They demolished quarterbacks. Uh, in fact, they didn't want to knock Tony Eason out of the game of the Super Bowl. They wanted to keep him in. <laughs> like, uh, prop I, him up? <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately, they did knock him out. And, uh, you know, Jim Zorn came in. But they... This is when you could hit the quarterbacks with your helmet head first. Oh, my God. They, they did stuff to quarterbacks. It was just vicious. And then they'd bark like, like dogs. You know, whoop, 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 whoop. During the um, game. Yeah, right yeah, on the Oh, yeah, field, right, right. right after something like that, they'd all stand up and bark. Uh, it was just, yes, it was something that within a couple of years, the, uh, you know, I guess with spread offenses, going to, uh, you know, parts of the run and shoot, uh, doing things, you know, quick passing, uh, other ways to use, utilize running backs. And that they, they figured out other ways to work against it. But Buddy Ryan left after that year and became the head coach of the Eagles, and that kind of destroyed it. Um, right. But that year was absolutely transcendent. And the characters, don't forget the fridge, was there, William Perry, we, there weren't 320-pound guys in the league back then. And 
Yeah, not an entire league, much less, you know. I mean, now yeah. it's like common, right? But yeah, now every team like has, a freak show. Now, now every team has, I, I usually count eight to 12 guys who are 300 pounds or more right in that area. A lot of guys are listed at 299. That backs me up. Who weighs 299 pounds? <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, the fridge. Biscuit shy. <laughs> <laughs> the fridge, yes. Oh, God, they would tease him. But that guy saw the buddy Ryan wasn't using him. This guy probably at times weighed up to, I don't know, 340 pounds. But he said, I saw this. They're running little 10-yard sprints. I saw this dirt flying from behind his cleats. He said, I can use this guy. So they, you know, he carried the ball. He uh, caught a touchdown pass. They put him in the backfield. Because Ditka always carried a grudge against um, uh, the 49ers for putting, uh, God, what was his name, some offensive lineman in the backfield when they yeah i can see that yeah i remember that yeah guy mcintyre was his name that's who it was and he was a great big guy, like 280 something like that he wasn't 300 and uh bill walsh put him in the backfield zipka thought yeah i don't like that so anyway he used the fridge his characters were such good players too don't forget uh jim covert just got put into the hall of fame you know off Mm -hmm. his tackle Great. And there's so many guys on defense. You know, Richard Dent. Didn't even mention Richard Dent. Uh, you had no prayer. You, you had the quarterback. You could see they were scared when they played against this 46. Yeah, I think the ferocity is what stands out on my mind. And you don't always have that, you know, in football. I mean, you have to be – you have to love – the game, oh. but some guys just really love to hit. Yes, they do. And, and you had that <laughs> as a collection of bears on that defense. Yeah, it was uh, it was a collection. Also, uh, don't forget of, of first rounders. They really collected a lot of talent. And then you had that middle linebacker position. You know, going from Dick Butkus and then to Singletary because Brian Urlacher after that was just uh, a rare position in and of itself. And they had Mike Singletary who was you know, hellfire brimstone like a preacher. I remember talking to him one time. You know, Mike, you hit guys so hard. He broke like over a dozen helmets when he was at uh, when he was playing at Baylor. So sometimes he'd break it. Just his head was stuck right in his shoulders. He had no neck basically. You could look at it. It was like right there, perfect for football. It looked like a missile. And he, I said, when you hit somebody so hard, what's it like? He said, it's. He was almost like a preacher. He said, it's, it's. You feel this, this contact, this, this force, and he feels it, and it's good for you, and it's good for him. <laughs> it's like, you know, this explosion, it's like, <laughs> bam, man, okay, this is something, you know, out of body. <laughs> and, then they had, and then they had one of the all-time great players ever on offense in Walter Payton. Oh, and God. not just a great player, but a great guy. The, you know, the NFL Man of the Year Awards named after him. When you think about Peyton, what comes to mind from your time around him? I think of a guy who was uh, had a was childlike, not childish, but childlike. Had this um, happiness to him, but also this this drive that was inside, kind of like Ditka. Uh, I think Walter was um, probably ADHD. You know, I mean, he's like he had to be moving. He's drumming all the time. He's always moving. He'd mm-hmm. be standing there, and if nothing was happening, he'd come up and pinch your leg. Everybody knows this from behind. It's so hard. They can leave like a huge black and blue mark. Just, he thought that was funny. But he would do hmm. stuff like that. It was always like a love tap from Walter. He was lighting firecrackers. He would call Ditka and, uh, you know, this guy that had voicemail, he disguised his voice as like he was a, uh, a Mexican female. He could do all these different <laughs> voices. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. This is Juanita. I, anyway, he would do stuff like that. He, uh, I, I don't know. And then inside of him, the beating he took was just incredible. Uh, just, just incredible. And I've always wondered if that liver ailment, liver cancer or whatever they found it, bile duct cancer, had anything to do with the beating he took as a player. Because there were times I saw him on the sidelines and he would come back wobbly from the play and he would literally take a uh, smelling salt, crack him, that ammonia, just like breathe it. You do that mm-hmm. once. Anybody try that once, your head will jerk back. It's beyond belief. And he would just need that thing to like come to again. Then he'd go back in on the next play. His his desire was probably so off the charts. 
that it, it transcended his very body. He should not have been doing what he was actually doing. Wonder, wonder where that came from, that desire. You know, part of it came, well, first of all, it's innate. We, we don't understand the human psyche. I certainly don't understand that. But his older brother, Eddie, had set a lot of records. He was a very good player, smaller than Walter, but really good at Jackson State and uh, in high school. As best I can tell, he was a bit of a bully. You know, mm-hmm. there's this real competition between the two of them. I mean, real, uh, serious. Mm-hmm. You know, you could get them. I mean, Eddie loved Walter, but there was this thing like, I, I just want to kick his ass, too. Mm-hmm. And I think Walter felt that towards Eddie, maybe going a little too far, but the transference of, you know, that could have been part of it. Brothers, but just the two of them. And, That's interesting. You know, yeah. Uh, you can psychoanalyze it all you wanted to, but something inside of him being from the deep south, if this guy goes to Jackson State, are you kidding me? Not LSU, not Ole Miss, you know, not Miami, not Arkansas, not any of these places, because racism was absolute in the south. Uh, and, you know, more hidden, but absolute up north, too. And I think mm-hmm. Walter, underneath, like a lot of black guys who were able to cover it, maybe like even a lot of black blues men from the south, you get underneath, you tap it, there's this rage there. Rage against society, rage against unfairness, rage about being treated wrongly. Uh, I mean, this guy should have been the Heisman Trophy winner at some big school. He was that good in college. He was unbelievable. But he's a little dinky, you know, um, uh, traditional black college. All these guys. Hell, when I went to the Chiefs and I got drafted there, they had all kinds of guys from Grambling from Morgan State. Willie Lanier was from Morgan right. State. Who's ever even heard of it? It's in Baltimore. Yeah, how, I mean, think about it. That's how the great Steelers yeah. uh, teams of the 70s was built, is they, they recruited, or not recruited, they drafted guys yeah. out of the black colleges. The and those guys could have black played. Colleges. They could have played in the Big Ten. They could have played anywhere. Buck Buchanan. I mean, are you kidding me? 6'8", 275, or six, maybe 6'6". Six, six. And this guy can't play in a Big Ten team? So you go to some little dinky school. I mean, it was really, I think, something that drove Walter more than anybody has ever really talked about or can ever prove. Well, he certainly channeled it in a productive way as a football player and was known as a great person, hence the NFL award named Man of the Year after him. And he's certainly one of the most beloved sports figures in Chicago. Um, And obviously, during your time as a sports writer, in Chicago, there's another guy who's also become so well-known that he's an international figure, and that's this guy named Jordan, I believe, Michael. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mike, number 23, Air Jordan. Just saw an article of today, who's the greatest basketball player of all time, who's in USA Today, and they said, uh, is it um, Kareem, uh, LeBron, or Michael? And, it, and the answer was yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> I mean, right. It was really good, yeah, really good. Right. Just, yeah, I, you know, that's one of the reasons I um, left Sports Illustrated. Probably could be the main reason that uh, he was not going to talk to Sports Illustrated anymore. This is 1994. And, right. uh, and you left in 95. Right? Yes, I did. And I, I love Sports Illustrated. I love the editors there, the writers, the freedom, the, the intellect, everything about it. But Jordan wasn't going to talk to him because of the baseball cover story exactly. when he went to the minor league baseball, right? Exactly. The one that said, bag it, Michael. Michael Jordan and the White Sox embarrassed baseball. And so Michael so, Jordan playing baseball led to you going to the Chicago Sun-Times. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody cares, yes, it did. Because <laughs> I was not going to spend, the guy had just been named, like uh, would soon be named the greatest athlete of the 20th century. I was not going to spend my career not being able to write about this guy. And I knew him. I'd seen him at Bulls practices. I'd written about him. I did a cover story on him for Sports Illustrated back in, I want to say, 1987. Uh, he, he, it was after his rookie year, and then his second year, he injured his foot, and then the next year he came back with a fire that was beyond belief. So anyway, I knew him. We got along. Uh, I really liked him. I mean, I, you know, a fascinating guy. What did you loved, like about him? I, I loved his personality, the way he could look out of the room and read it. Um, you know, he used to tell me, you know, I was really a bad kid when I was a kid. People think, well, he must have been Mr. Perfect. I mean, he was, I believe, this close to maybe going the other way, you know, 
being a real bad kid and being a bad adult if he hadn't been for basketball uh, or something else. Because he had this mischievousness. In it. I mean, just he was mischievous. He was also he was a little like Walter in that regard. But he also had, um, what, what was it? He, he saw things a little differently. He was not going to play the game. It gave him the courage to create on the floor. It gave him this passion to not only win, but to destroy the opponent. And I remember one time I asked him, I said, you know, do you have to win? What is it? Do you have to win all the time? Is it just winning that's the thing? He said, no, it isn't really. It's, I can't stand the thought of another man making his name off of me. And so that was it. It wasn't, uh, you know, he just didn't want to lose. Winning would be, was kind of irrelevant, but you're not going to beat me. So however you want to look at that kind of equation, that's how it was. Do you have a favorite anecdote about Jordan from your time around him? Something that really speaks to who he was, not just as a basketball player, but, but what he was about. Well, two things, really. One was um, him playing with the flu game. I mean, he was sick. You could see it. This guy, you ever had the flu? We've all had it, or food poisoning. It was usually about a six-hour, maybe 12-hour window where you'd mm-hmm. rather die. I mean, you can't do it. Your head hurts. Your eyes hurt. Your skin hurts. It's just horrible. To see him play through that was astounding. He got in Utah. And then the other thing was um, they had just were dedicating the James Jordan Boys and Girls Club. Uh, named after um, you know his father who'd been murdered, right. and uh, it was a, a new, brand new building. And Jordan was there with Juanita, and Mayor Daly was there. There were a lot of dignitaries, a lot of swells there, and the press all around. And we go in. We're, we're going around different rooms, and they go into the art room. And there's a teacher there, this young woman, and she's so nervous, it's beyond belief. And she has to talk a little, like, "What's going to happen in here?" And mm-hmm. she's kind of, you know, well, they'll be painting, you know, we'll do clay and stuff, you know, and finger painting. And she just kind of couldn't even go on. And Michael steps forward and says, what you're saying is the room will never be this clean again. And everybody laughed. She mm-hmm. laughed. And it was just the whole tension demolished, diminished. And anybody could have done what he said, what he did. But he's the one that read it. That's interesting because that's like very empathetic, and I always think of him as more like an assassin, you know. And yet here he is reading the room and seeing what she needed in that moment. Yeah, somebody should be that sarcastic and that mean to somebody like Jerry Krause, who he never forgave. Krause meant that he had that intuitive empathy where he'd go against the empathy, like he knows what he could say to you to be nice. I'm just say the opposite because I'm a bad dude. But he understood it, and that was that to me always. I just like. Wow, wow, what a, what, that's incredible. That's like somebody who's putting their arm around somebody when they're feeling down. Some, you know, like somebody's vastly your superior. Uh, yeah, it was, that was something. It always you think, you think it made him a better basketball player and how? I think it made him, yeah, I think that was something that he had over other players. Like, they would always joke about Scotty Pippen being from Hamburg, Arkansas. You know, he's just a country bumpkin. And he was like the youngest of 13 or something like that. Well, Jordan would tease him. Jordan was into teasing because he knew how to get at you. He knew what your vulnerability was because that ability to read you, read your weakness on the floor, whatever it might be. Maybe you don't like to go to your right. Maybe you can't handle my crossover. Maybe I know you can jump and everything, but you can't, you can't do a thing about my follow-up, my fadeaway jumper. And I think that was... Uh, I really think that was part of his personality, which was mm-hmm. fascinating to me, his personality. I mean, first of all, this guy was a splendid, unique athlete. He had hands, he was so big, you know, loved to shake hands with him. I shook hands with Dr. J, too. And it's like, it's hilarious. Your fingers come halfway up your wrist. He had <laughs> really long... Your arm. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, I mean, really long arms, really long legs, not a, not a particularly long torso. He had, he, he was just magnificent broad-shouldered, um, and then he was like a panther, the way he could move, his agility. And I think that he understood all that. I have something nobody else has. Nobody. And here we go. You guys are going to eat it. Every one of you. And if you ever, ever try to make your name off me, which a couple of guards 
did. They might have had a good game in a series. Like I remember DJ Armstrong was playing on the other team for the Hornets or whatever. He celebrated after they beat the Bulls. Right. And DJ was a tough, tough player. He was, I remember he was missing a front tooth. He'd been knocked out. He just kept playing. <laughs> but he celebrated. And Jordan's like, going through that computer. You will die. And my guy was just demolished in the next game and, and on. He never forgot stuff like that. Just like mm. with Jerry Krause. Never forgave him for not playing him when he felt that his foot had healed and he could have, you know, he could have kept playing. They would take him out after a certain amount of minutes and it drove Jordan crazy. And he never forgot the Sports Illustrated cover when he played baseball, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like he never. would file away these grievances and take to them this, out. On to this day, uh, that was 1994, so that's 27 years ago. He has not spoken to Sports Illustrated. And I just thought, you guys, I've talked to the editors there about it. I said, when I saw the cover, I said, do you know what you're doing here? I mean, is he really embarrassing baseball? I thought it was an incredibly noble move. The guy was not a bad baseball player. He batted like 20, I don't know, 206 or something. He had a few home runs. 206, he, he'd be playing today in the majors. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, even Jerry Reinsdorf said, if we'd given him more time, I think this guy could have made the majors. I remember one time he was <laughs> down there with Birmingham, or maybe it was with uh, After the Sox, something. Uh, I was watching a game, and he kind of, he was on first, and somebody hit the ball. It was a force play second, and he was trying to fake the second base not with a move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the second base doesn't move. You're not going to get it to fall off its feet. <laughs> you know, he was trying, he was figuring out the difference between basketball and baseball. But to say that he embarrassed baseball because he tried it during the strike when the entire major leagues were full of scrubs and, and they called off the World Series, uh, it wasn't him embarrassing baseball. Uh, you know, yeah. He was not, a, not a good headline. Not a good no, editorial choice there. <laughs> not for the guy that never forgets. Nope. So that was 27 years. He's been on the cover a lot since. Never spoken to the magazine since. Well, we're never going to forget Jordan. He's the basketball player, perhaps of all time. You can argue all you want, but he's certainly the, the guy who defined his generation, his era. And it's funny, you know, Rick, you were a football player, as we've mentioned. But really, basketball has been kind of a defining theme throughout your whole journalism career, going back to, as you mentioned, your first book, Heaven is a Playground, the great book about your time up in New York in the playgrounds of the early 70s, summer of 73. You write the article for Sports Illustrated, and then the next year you go back to Brooklyn. What is it about basketball that always drew you as a writer? Well, you know, I've thought about that a lot. I I love the game. I just love the way it works, uh, five guys against five. Or the beauty of it is three-on-three, two-on-two, one-on-one, or just shoot by yourself. Shoot free throws or you know, do jumpers. I've seen games of, um, what the hell, like 21. I remember I was living down in Florida and go to the local gym, and there'd be like 25 guys. You know, that's where you shoot, and whoever gets a rebound, takes the ball back, and can shoot. It'd be mayhem, like a mob, and they're playing this game of 21. You can do so many things with the game. When James Naismith invented it in 1891, Springfield, Massachusetts, it was immediately popular. Immediately. Everybody liked it. Um, women liked it. Kids mm-hmm. liked it. It's, it's a global game where every person on the court has the opportunity to do everything. That is pass, dribble, shoot, defend, uh, you know, whatever else. Hot dog, hog the ball, everything. But just because you're, um, you know, like in baseball, you're a pitcher. Nobody else is going to pitch. You know, you're, you come to bat. It's just you. But basketball, just seeing the way it worked, I liked it. I loved the ball. I, when I was a kid, I'd listen to Bradley basketball games back home in Fury, and I'd dribble my ball through the house, and my mom would stop it. Rick, you can't do that. Go outside. Be dead winter. I'd go outside and dribble the ball, come back in, listen to the radio. That, it was a nice orange Voight ball. And it gets so cold. The Voight ball. Voight. Right. Oh, man, I love Voight. Like Remember Voight? Oh, I drew the Voight ball in February. Uh, <laughs> well, so I did, and it'd be frozen. So I'd take it in and put it in the sink in, in the, a bath of warm water. Get all, we had a gravel driveway. It didn't even have cement. Get all the dirt, gravel off it, warm it up, the orange, warm my hands up, which were frozen, go back out and keep dribbling and stuff. So I like that, and I like the fact that there's so much history tied in with basketball. 
uh, particularly race, is absolutely embodied by basketball, from the Harlem Globetrotters to the city game, you yeah. know, which is what I was following up. Pete Axelm, God love him, wrote uh, part of his book, The City Game, was about uh, New York street basketball. We didn't really investigate it, but I said, man, I, I want to see this. I want to see the cradle of it. So how did, how did you do that, Rick? You go up to Brooklyn in 74 to summer. How did you report that book? What did you do? Well, I had no idea what I was doing. First of all, Todd, there's no blueprint. I didn't know how to write a book. I didn't know what you did. I knew how long a book was. You know, it wasn't like you could go online and say, hey, you know, get all this stuff, a YouTube video and something. This is what you do, kid. Do this and do that. So I just had notebooks. I had those um, composition books, you know, those cardboard ones you all had. Mm -hmm. kind of uh, blue or green uh, scattered-looking covers, and they had maybe 100, 120 pages in it. And I drew a line down it, and I would write down one column, and the next, just my observation. What do you see? Well, I'm walking up Nostrand Avenue towards the, the park, Foster Park. There's all these kids on bicycles, you know, zipping through, they're doing wheelies. There's this broken glass in the gutters. There's old men passing around a bottle of wine you know, in, in a sack. And then all of a sudden, this basketball court opens up. This asphalt court, three of them, and it's like this cacophony, if I can use that word. It's music of, of dribbling. Yelling and screaming and, you know, pass the ball and all the noise of the clang off the rim and stuff. Right. And it's like, damn, I just walked into Oz. You know, and there's something about the playground, too. I mean, it obviously it drew you in the early 70s up in New York. You went back a couple times for Sports Illustrated. And and then the other thing that I wanted to ask you quickly about was in 2017 for the Sun-Times, you saw a way that basketball fit into a certain community at Orr Academy yeah. in Chicago and. Tell me about why you ended up going to, to Orr Academy in 2017 to write about a basketball team that's really in the heart of all this poverty and violence in Chicago. Yeah, yeah Orr is on the west side on Chicago Avenue. It's uh, 4,000 west, I want to say. So anyway, you can look straight up Chicago Avenue to the lake and look right at the Hancock building. You're looking at it, but it might as well be another country. Um, I had already written a story a series about um, a park in, on the south side that Derrick Rose frequented in, uh, in Englewood, which is, a, again, a violence, just plagued area. It was called Murray Park, sometimes known as Murder Park. Uh, and Eric, uh, Derek made it out of there somehow. And I wanted to see how. I wanted to see the workings of that park. But, so then I, time went by, and there was so much killing, so much bloodshed, so much horror, but how does any kid transcend this? How does he come out of this and play something as functional as a game of basketball and somehow make it, literally, I mean, physically make it to school sometimes? So I talked to our prep writer, Michael O'Brien, at the Sun-Times. I said, who's a, who'd be a good coach? I don't want to go to the south side. I don't want to do Simeon or, you know, whatever else down that way. I want to go out west, be Marshall or somewhere else. And he said, you know what? This coach... He thought he named it to you and gave reasons why I might not, I might not like them or they might not work. This is coach named Lou Adams. Lou is a fiery guy. He's out at Orr Academy. And uh, one thing I like about him is he'll never lie to you. I said, well, okay, that's my guy. I called Lou, and Lou said, of all things, there's always has to be your mentor. Lou said, come on up. So I embedded with Lou Adams. He's a guy from Tunica, Mississippi. He had an outhouse. I mean, you talk about somebody from the deep south, didn't have plumbing, all that stuff. And here he is, he's a coach. He had stories. I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but he'd been shot uh, years earlier. He wasn't in a gang. I mean, I, who knows all of it, anybody's past. But he was there at Orr, and he said, yeah, you can follow us. And I did. And unbeknownst to me, this team was going to win the state championship. I mean, I had right, no right. idea. None. Zero. I was just a team. This is where I wanted to be in the heart of the violence and the shootings and the gangs and all this. How does somebody transcend what's around them? And they win the state championship. <laughs> yeah, Orr Academy goes on and wins the 2A Illinois state championship. And it's like, you talked about Oz. 
It's like, you're there. You're right there. And this whole story unfolds of the success of this team. But really, what did it mean to the community? I think that's what it's all about. You know, I think it meant a huge amount. I hope people were dragged along with it, the success. I hope the players were. I, I hate to tell you, but one of the guys, the guys I really liked, uh, it was a good guy. He was going to junior college and was going to a, a four-year college this year. I think he was going to be a junior. He got arrested for murder. And the story, uh, he, it's, you know, yeah, he shot and killed somebody. Yeah, it, but it was defense. Maybe he went a little too far afterwards, but it's just a horrible, sad story. And uh, he got sucked in. He was trying to make it out. Uh, he, he truly was. And uh, the full story, I hope, comes out. I hope they take have mercy on him. I called Lou Adams, and he said, yeah, man, uh, I'll keep you posted. But um, I hope the others can make it because the odds of being, I said, my series, if I were a young man on the West Side, knowing what I know about myself in high school, as a teenager, the kind of kid I was, I wouldn't have made it. And I know that. I, I just I feel that. If you need something or somebody to help you out of this mess. Uh, and who that person is, I don't know, man. It's almost an intractable problem. But, I, God, my heart goes out to every one of those kids on the team. Well, it's an amazing series, and I, I really recommend people to go back and take a look at that. Um, you know, Rick, you go into this community, and you, like you mentioned the word see, you're looking to see something beyond just what's the obvious, right? What else is going on? And, uh, you know, I think about my time in sports and people would joke, oh, you're in a toy department, you know, and it was kind of a put down thing. Huh. But yeah, well, but really what you your career has proven that to be a fallacy because you've done all the reporting, you've, you've built the relationships, you've found the facts, and then you had the insight to to bring some light into something so we could see it as readers. And um, that's why I always had a lot of respect for what you did. You saw more than than what was well, on the well, chest. Thank you, Todd. You were in it, too. And you know what I, people, it's easy to call it the toy department. I think you might call it the political writers are in the toy department. Think of what we covered in sports. The great racial uh, awakening in America. What else? When we talked about the Globetrotters and the integration of the NBA. What Jackie Robinson? Where did that happen? That was sports. Muhammad Ali, sports. Talk about uh, contracts. You talk about fairness. You talk about exploitation. You talk about transcending things to be better human beings, the good part of sports. Um, all those things were right there in front of us. The game is obvious. I mean, the game's there. And sometimes the games are enough to talk about. But the ancillary stuff, that's what always fascinated me. The people, the social movements that are going on. I mean, look at Colin Kaepernick. That's football. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was, you know... That started the whole Black Lives Matter thing. Uh, so I've always been happy to be in sports. Never felt constrained by it at all. I thought the, the parameters uh, are out there. Wherever you want to, however you want to take, however far you want to take the uh, you know the stakes and put them out there. That's where sports will take you. Well, and if you have people like Lou Adams or even Michael Jordan, for that matter, if they'll let you in, if they'll give you the access to take you into their world, then you can help others see it too. And um, it's been quite an adventure, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. You know, I mean, I think part of being a writer, if you want to do like journalism and what we do, you know, what you did and what, what I do, I think you have to learn how to um, deal with people, to understand them, to make them like you, if you will. Nobody wants a jerk hanging around with them. Uh, you know, just be somebody that um, they don't mind having you around. Even if you don't say anything, you're just there, you're watching, they let you observe, and uh, what happens, happens all around you. Ask the right questions. Be curious, right? Be curious. Yeah, be curious. Yeah, that's it, man. Be curious. Curiosity can take you a long way. <laughs> well, it took you here to Press Box Access, and we really appreciate it because you got plenty of other things you could be doing, but to spend some time and talk about your career and the people and places you've been, it's been a, a real treat. Rick, I really thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Todd. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. 
This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.